I was born into a family that very conservative in nature and I grew up in the Catholic Church and I was a very uh, curious child, very different than my brothers. I questioned my spirituality at a very young age. So I was that kid who would go to my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night and say, okay, wait a minute, like, let's say time ends. What happens after time ends? Like, how does eternity continue? So I was always questioning those big, big things that my parents never really knew how to answer. And my mom's answer was usually just like, I'm really not sure, Megan. I don't I don't know. But she would hold me and comfort me and provide a space for me to be myself. And that's what I equated to as God's love. And towards the end of my tenure in college, I realized that I was gay. I was outed by an ex-boyfriend and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes had a really hard time with the news and began to call me, question me, sit me down, tell me I was going to hell. Everything that I didn't need to hear were the things that I heard after, after the news was given to everyone. I really had a hard time. It was a complete struggle. I didn't have anyone in my life at the time who didn't say to me at some point, Megan, I love you, but I disagree with your lifestyle or I disagree with your choice. So I wasn't getting unconditional love from anyone at the time. I had, I had close friends, but I didn't feel understood. And so it was a time for me to really figure out who I was, but it was hard to be enveloped by a culture that didn't see me or get me at all. And so after coming out to my family and we had a hard time there, I ended up leaving Mississippi for a while and going to Florida. So I finished my college degrees and I moved on. About a year and a half later, I had another unlocked moment where I was still in Colorado. I was standing in front of a friend's kitchen window looking out, and all of a sudden I saw this vision of the state of Mississippi, and I started crying because I knew that it was calling me home, but I did not want to go home. I was absolutely terrified. But as I thought about it, I realized that if I didn't come home, then how could I really heal? And how could I have the conversations I needed to have with my family? And what do you remember of that first Pride Parade? Now you're really going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was newly pregnant and throwing up all day long, but I walked down those streets with my wife and I saw my community show up and standing on the long side of the road, cheering 
supporting us. Were there protesters there? Yeah, but they were so outnumbered. I remember just not caring about the protesters. All I cared about was just seeing the support from the community that had rejected me 14 years ago. And it was completely overwhelming. And another one of those unlock moments for me. After that parade, I felt like I can take a break now. I can rest. I'm going to go and grow this child and become a mom and move on to the next chapter of my life. It's, it's almost like it closed a chapter for me in a lot of ways. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Megan Onan is an award-winning author, keynote speaker, and expert in vulnerable storytelling. She's the author of the award-winning book, Creating Your Heaven on Earth, and Courage, Agreeing to Disagree is Not Enough. Megan is also a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, where she produces regular content for Forbes.com, and that's where we met. I was struck by the quiet power with which she tells a story, and I want you to experience it too. Megan is passionate about creating deeper connections through speaking, workshops, and through her executive speaker coaching. Her approach is unique in that she uses storytelling as a way to overcome differences and generate healing. For the last decade, she's been a significant voice for the LGBTQ community in Mississippi, speaking with pastors, university representatives, and classes on the radio and on the news as a voice offering unity and cooperation. She now lives with her wife, Claire, and their daughter, Merritt, in Starkville, Mississippi. Megan's third book has just been published and is called Held and Free, Coming Out of Your Story. It's a powerful narration of her personal journey, and I'm delighted that she's accepted my invitation to bring it to life for you here. Megan Onan, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you so, so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week long. So this is a highlight right before we go into the weekend. It's a perfect time to have a conversation like this. Absolutely. So Megan, where do we need to start in your journey to understand your unlock moment and where you are today? Such a good question. I was born into a family that very conservative in nature. And I grew up in the Catholic church and I was a very a uh, curious child, very different than my brothers. I questioned my spirituality at a very young age. 
I talk about this in my book, but I would go to church. I think it was in fourth grade or something like that. And I would start having headaches. I, I literally did not want to go into church because in the Catholic church at the time, while I love the priest and I love the community, the message was one of, um, you're not worthy of God's love. And that just didn't sit well with me as a child. So I was that kid who would go to my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night and say, okay, wait a minute, like, let's say time ends. And what happens after time, time ends? Like, how does eternity continue? So I was always questioning those big, big things that my parents never really knew how to answer. And my mom's answer was usually just like, I'm really not sure, Megan. I don't, I don't know. But she would hold me and comfort me and provide a space for me to be myself. And that's what I equated to as God's love. And so I had a very strong foundation and belief in being held. My book is called Held and Free. And, um, and really just questioning everything. I was just so different from my peers. And I knew that I was different. And so I kept to myself a lot. I would end up in my room all the time, journaling to God, and uh, really just trying to figure out who I was. I had this very deep sense um, of spirituality all throughout my high school years. And, and really, it was just a really important part of who I was. And when, when you use the word different, then when you, when you think back to the earliest times when you thought, I'm different, what, what was different to you then? What did you notice? How did that, what, what, what was that that felt different? Well, growing up in Mississippi, religion here is, is very conservative. Most people are probably, at the time, this was in the 90s, um, went to a Baptist church. And so even being Catholic was, was very different and rare. And so we were kind of outcasted being Catholic in you know, a public school. Um, but even within the Catholic Church, I knew I was different because I didn't want to say the things that needed to be said in church. I didn't want to follow the songs. I didn't want to follow the creed. I didn't want to follow along the way everybody told me to follow along. I, I wondered why women couldn't be, be priests. You know, I'm seven, eight years old. Why, why can't I be up there? Why can't I be represented? And so um, it's just not things that my peers asked. And so I, I was just really different in a sense of how I viewed God, how I viewed the world, and my perspectives were, were I would ask questions that my peers didn't, didn't think to ask. So um, I always just felt very different and just had a very deep sense about uh, life in a way that, that I knew was unique because I couldn't relate to other people on that level that were my age. I always had older friends. It really resonates for me at the moment. I'm working with uh, an entrepreneur who is doing something genuinely, I think, remarkable. And I had this kind of conversation with her. And what I found was that the traits that made her ask massive questions, again, started at a really, really young age. She said, I was always the one that didn't accept that that should just be how it is. I was always the one that was a bit of the rebel. And years and years later, that manifested in a very particular way of challenging the orthodoxy around, in her case, science. But that, that arc of curiosity 
started right back at the beginning. And that's really interesting. And, and I, I hear that in, in what you say. Thank you for sharing that. And as you were talking about that, it made me think it wasn't just spirituality that I, that I felt different. It was, you know, I'd be in the shower or the bathtub and I'd be practicing speeches about equality and fairness. I noticed very young that things were not equal. And especially in Mississippi, race has, has been a challenge for many, many years, race relations. And so I saw that very young and wanted to find a way to bridge the gap between us, our differences. And so that underlying passion is the one thing that has carried on through all of my unlock moments and has been kind of that thread that that has never ended for me, that that core message of really, you know, wanting wanting things to be equal and fair for all people. When when you were young, you're talking about race relations. Do you remember stories about when you first noticed that when you when you were young? What you know, what was it that brought that to life for you? What did you notice? Gosh, I'm trying to think. That's a really good question. I have to think about that from a really young age. Um, well, for one, on one side of town were, was where most of, you know, white people lived. And on the other side of town is where most of the black people lived. And we would never come together as a community. It was, there's white churches and then there's black churches. And so it was very segregated in how we communed outside of school. We played sports together, but I wasn't invited to their church and they weren't invited to to my church or whatever it is. It was just very separate throughout town and how we, you know, um, how we lived and, and how we worshiped. So it was, it was just very apparent that, hey, you know, we're clearly different and we're all congregating to each other. And that doesn't make sense because these people are my friends. So how, you know, it just, it really bothered me. <laughs> you made me think of, um, I used to work for a retail business and most of the UK is a, is a pretty diverse mixed kind of community, but there are parts of the UK where, where it's more segregated. And one of those areas is Northern Ireland between the Protestant Catholic communities. I remember visiting the store in a particular town and they said, well, you know, you'd never expect our footfall to be as high as the other stores. And I went, you know, why not? Not thinking where I was in the country. And they said, well, we're on this side of the bridge. And so no one's going to cross the bridge to come to the store, even though it's the one in the town. So take us through your high school and, and what happened next. <laughs> high school, I, I really loved high school. And um, I think things started getting challenging for me towards the end of high school because I lost three different friends in three different car accidents. And it shifted my worldview, um, realizing at that age how precious and how quickly life can be taken. That was a really difficult thing for me to process and get through. And so going into college on the cusp of all of this happening in that last year or two of high school put me into a depression. And at the time, I didn't know how to deal with that. And neither did my parents. I didn't know that, you know, maybe therapy or counseling would have been a really great thing for me. I was a uh, well-respected athlete and I went to 
college on athletic scholarships. I played basketball and softball. And so my freshman year of college was really a hard transition because I couldn't work through the feelings I was having about how how quickly life can be taken. And so having that deep sense of spirituality and that that deep sense of fairness embedded within who I am, I felt really challenged by that. And I wasn't sure what to do with all of it. And so I finished, I went through through my collegiate athletic career, um, really tr- trying to find myself in a spiritual way. I, <laughs> I came to Europe, actually. I came to um, Poland and the Czech Republic with a, a group called Athletes in Action. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but the point of the group is to bring athletes together to come over and save other people and to get them to convert to Christianity. And so I was really exploring and I figured out very quickly it wasn't my thing, but I, I definitely gave it, gave it a shot to see if, it, if I fit there because I just didn't feel like I was fitting anywhere spiritually at all. And then I really got into the Fellowship of Christian Athlete, which is, is Baptist-based. It's a very conservative way of seeing the world and the same concept as Athletes in Action. And it became my spiritual home because I love the community. And there were other athletes there, and we, we became really amazing friends, and I became very involved there. And towards the end of my tenure in college, I realized that I was gay. And... Um, and I was outed by an ex-boyfriend and the fellowship of Christian athletes had a really hard time with the news and began to, um, call me, question me, sit me down, tell me I was going to hell. Um, just everything that I didn't need to hear were the things that I heard after, after the news was given to everyone. And I, really had a hard time. It was a complete struggle. Um, I didn't have anyone in my life at the time who didn't say to me at some point, Megan, I love you, but I disagree with your lifestyle or I disagree with your choice. So I wasn't getting unconditional love from anyone at the time. I had, I had close friends, but I didn't feel understood. And so it was a time for me to really figure out who I was, but it was hard to be enveloped by a culture that didn't see me or get me at all. And so after coming out to my family um, and we had a hard time there, I ended up leaving Mississippi for a while and, um, and going to Florida. So I finished my college degrees and I moved on. But that's kind of like what my college experience was like. It was just this roller coaster of trying to figure out who I was, figuring out who I was in one way, leading to, you know, okay, what's the next thing for me and who am I really? And just bring to life when that was, because I think when, when, you, when you describe that, that, that everyone around you found that challenging. And I imagine what year I think would be a time when everybody around you would find that challenging. What, what year were we talking about? This was 2004. So about 20 years ago. Only about 20 years ago. And, and, and for me, that is one of the most striking parts of this story. Because if you told me, and I know that, that you are young, 
Um, but if you'd said, you know, it was 1981, and in those days it was difficult, or it was the 70s, I mean, you know, in, in, in this country, being gay was, was illegal for a very, very long time. Um, and in the 80s, it was difficult. In the 90s, it was becoming more normal. 2000, I would have said, broadly accepted. Um, but of course, again, parts of the world, parts of the country here, um, yeah, still very, very challenging. Um, and your relationship with spirituality at that time? It was, it was, um, it was kind of like, after leaving Mississippi, it gave me the option to pursue other ways of thinking. So while being in Mississippi, it was hard to do that because there, there just wasn't anyone to talk to that was different than being Christian. And so leaving gave me the chance to explore. And, and I did, I ended up going to like a universalist Catholic church, which was super small. There was a gay priest. It was, it was dumbfounding to me, like, oh my gosh, this actually exists. And then I moved on to like a unity church. When, once I, I moved to Miami, I was working for the state. And, um, and so that was, you know, another thing. And then I ended up moving to Colorado and I ended up going to a spiritual center that enveloped all ways of thinking, all religions, all spiritualities, and utilized, you know, pieces of everything. And I was like, okay, this is it. This makes sense to me to take pieces of what resonates with me and myself and to use that um, in my life. And so I really started finding who I was as I was gone from Mississippi. And I actually ended up writing my first book, Creating Your Heaven on Earth, while I was in Colorado, because I was becoming so awakened to who I was spiritually, and I needed to write it all down. And I wrote that book in the middle <laughs> of an emotionally abusive relationship as a way of, I almost wrote myself out of that relationship. It was almost like a calling forth into myself. And so um, my spiritual journey from the time I left Mississippi until the time I decided to come back was just magnificent. The strides that I took and what I learned and who I met, and it just made such a huge impact to get out and to go find myself in a, in a totally different way and to be myself in other places from the get-go where I didn't have to say, hey, I'm gay, you know? So it was... Um, it was an incredible six or seven years of being gone that, that really helped me find out who, who I was deep down. And I was interested when you said, you know, when, when, when you were outed, that wasn't your control, that wasn't your timing. Do you think, were you, were you on a journey of figuring out how you wanted to share that story or, or at that time were you in a place where you just, you didn't want to, people to know then or ever, how, how did you feel about that? Where, you know, where were you on your journey of bringing it to other people's attention, if ever? I didn't have a big plan. I, I, I think it was a year. So I started dating my first girlfriend and it was a year later that I was outed. So, but that year I really wanted to stay in hiding. I was terrified. I knew I had seen how other teammates had been treated and I knew what was around the corner for me. So I was absolutely terrified, but I, it also didn't feel good to hide. And, um, so I told like my younger brother, I told a few close friends, 
Um, and so I, I wasn't ready. I, I don't know what, what I would have done. Honestly, it, it may have been for the best in the end for me to just go through that instead of waiting for me to be ready um, as hard as it was. So what helped you to find that groundedness and connection to who you were and who you wanted to be and how you wanted to shape the life that you were going to build? What helped you to do that? That's a good question. I think it's just been a process. You know, it's just life, life. There's always going to be a challenge in life, right? You know, I mean, now I have a really good foundation that I can stand on and I'm, you know, and I'm firm in and I know I'm going to be okay no matter what I'm faced with. I know that now, but I think what really, there's a picture in my mind that I was still in Colorado and I had just gotten out of this really bad relationship that I was talking about. My book had just been published and I remember going up to the mountains and I was at this reservoir and I was sitting on these rocks and I just remember having this moment. This was definitely an unlock moment for me where I said, I, I just screamed out loud. I was crying. I felt lost at the, in that moment. And I just screamed out loud. I want to, I want to be loved the way that I love. And it wasn't, about partnership with another person. It was about me loving myself and being able to, to be okay with who I was, um, self-acceptance, you know, seeing my worthiness. But it was one of those moments that sh shifted things for me. It was like I was asking for what I really needed, and I'd never done that before. And so there was a clarity there that I think propelled me forward. I did end up meeting my wife not long after that. I mean, it just coincidentally happened, but um, about a year and a half later, I had another unlocked moment where I was still in Colorado. This is 2010. And I was standing in front of a friend's kitchen window looking out. And all of a sudden I, I saw this vision of the state of Mississippi. And I started crying because I knew that it was calling me home but I did not want to go home. I was absolutely terrified. But as I thought about it, I realized that if I didn't come home, then how could I really heal? And how could I have the conversations I needed to have with my family? How did I, you know, could I have the conversations I needed to have with the community that I felt completely rejected by? It was that decision to come back that I think propelled me into the person that I am now. And I think if I had stayed away from Mississippi, everything would have, I wouldn't have grown as much as a human being if I had just kept everything at a distance and everyone at a distance and, and didn't come back and face it and find my strength and who I am. And so I think that those, those two things, those two unlock moments really propelled me into a space of, okay, now I get to deal with these insecurities. Now I get to face these head on. Now I get to see what I'm made of and I get to see how I can bring what I know is so very important to me to life and into my life. So that's what those two stories, I think were, were very, um, very important into getting to this point in my life. How do you feel right now as you tell those stories? 
it's always emotional for me because I'm so grateful for where I am right now. You know, I have my family, I have my four-year-old daughter, our mother-in-law lives with, with us. We have this beautiful seven-acre property in the middle of Mississippi. People think we're crazy for living here, but I absolutely love it because it's a matter of perception. It's a matter of how you exist in the world. It's a matter of how you treat people. It's a matter of how you treat yourself. And I'm grateful to be here and to know that we're okay. And so it's always emotional to go back to those stories and think about how hard it was to make those decisions and to ask for the things that I really, really wanted. So it's, um, yeah, it, it always hits. It's, it's, you know, you can, I've told these stories, I don't know how many times, but it's still, when you get into it, it's, it's still very much close to my heart. And I know that my listeners will be able to hear that. Um, and it's very interesting for me, you know, I've done many of these interviews and sometimes I interview people who have told their story many times and you can tell it's a very polished story. It's a very impactful story, but it's a very polished story. And then there's other people who are still, even though they've told the story many, maybe many times, but it's still vulnerable. And it's still, you're still finding the words in this moment that, that fit the way you want to tell it, the things you want to bring to life. Um, it's, it's interesting that the book I haven't written which I start to reference now more and more in these conversations, and it prompts me that I should probably go write it at some point, which is the book of the unlock moment, is I'm starting to think about what are the patterns that you hear in people when they talk about the unlock moment, the moment of clarity. And one of the characteristics is how vivid the recollection is. You know, I was crying. I was looking out the kitchen window. I was... Earlier today, I was doing an interview with somebody and he said I was driving my red Renault car. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a very vivid moment. And one of the chapters in the book that I haven't written is going to be called Alone with Others. And for me, it's a phrase that captures that, that moment. And I, I visualize you at the kitchen window um, and the picture of Mississippi comes into your mind what what does alone with others mean for you in that moment what comes to life for you alone with others first of all i love that phrase it's almost like to me it feels like an invitation like an invitation to be a part of what we all share. I don't know. I don't know if I really have the words. I just know I have a feeling around it. It it just feels feels like the um the bridge between us in a way. That 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 makes sense. It's kind of like that space in between all of the details of life where we can just be who we are. And I think that I hear it with you and I've heard it with somebody I interviewed recently who was um She's, uh, she's coming on the podcast very soon. Um, she founded a little um, charity for people suffering with cancer, and she'd had cancer in her 
20s, actually. And she described being in the doctor's office with the doctor and her partner and I think a mother. And she said, at that moment, I felt so alone, even though I was surrounded by people who loved me and supported me. Um, and we were talking about the empowerment. So alone is so often said as a negative, but actually alone is also, uh, in, in my first book, The Idea Mindset, I had this phrase, only you will change your life. Um, and it's that idea that, that it'll change, but the only person that's going to do it will be you. Um, and when I was writing the book, I thought, oh, I better check that I'm not plagiarizing somebody else when I say only you will change your life because that's you know, such an obvious phrase. And I did a Google search and there wasn't a single page on the entire internet with that six word phrase, only you will change your life. Lots of only you can change your life, but nobody said only you will change your life. And I think I've always held on to that idea of, of it's a moment of agency. It's a moment of um, empowerment. And for you, you know, the story you tell of the reasons why you left Mississippi. And then there's a moment when you said, I choose to go back. For me, that, that really embodies this idea that I've always had in my head of, of, of alone with others and that empowerment. I love that. And it's something that I'm trying to teach my four-year-old, <laughs> you know, to, to get to that point in your life where you you realize you truly are in charge of your attitude, your view, your, how you respond to situations, what choices you make, what, if you go after your passions or you don't, like it's completely my responsibility that is the place to be. I mean, that's when you're really held and free, right? That's really powerful. And so you described a situation before when you left where, I slightly paraphrase, but you said nobody understood. Nobody, nobody could, everyone questioned you in some kind of way. And then you chose to go back to Mississippi when you went back, was it still like that? Yes, it was. It was. And that was, that was, a, it was a very hard transition for, for many years um, because it required me to continually be okay with myself. So like just even introducing my wife to someone as my wife or as my partner, that was so difficult and so hard because I was so scared of what that would mean on the other end of the conversation. I didn't want that discomfort. I didn't want that challenging question. And so little things like that, I would avoid interactions at the grocery store. I may walk in and see someone. And I'm like, okay, I know how they feel about this. I'm just going to go this way instead. And so it, it became, you know, a thing for me and it helped those regular grocery store visits showed me how much confidence I was gaining as time went on when I would then go up to the person and initiate a hug, knowing how they may have felt about who I was as a gay person and being okay with any response. That was my gauge for how I was doing. And it's my gauge for how I am doing still today. I care 
I don't care about what people think now about me being gay, you know, but it's a good gauge, I think, for anyone to kind of get a sense of how you feel about yourself in those day-to-day interactions that seem to be the hardest when you're feeling insecure. What was the path to acceptance in the community? It was a winding road. It has been a winding road. And I think it's just been a lot of conversations and a willingness to um, just come to the table and have those conversations. So I was constantly asked to go on the news. I would debate with Baptist preachers. Um, But my approach was never about debating. It was about just sharing my story and my experiences from my heart and creating conversation. So I would never go into a conversation on TV, on radio, or behind closed doors. I had a lot of pastors, a lot of priests come talk to me in my office and want to have a conversation and want to bridge the gaps or not. But either way, there were conversations that were happening. And um, I just always approached it from a space of, I'm going to share who I am and how I've been impacted by being who I am. And no blame, no, the way you're thinking is wrong, no um, telling somebody that the way they see the world is the wrong way to see the world. I never approached it from that space. It was always approached from this is a human being and we can find a way if we just tell each other our stories. And that's why storytelling has become such a big part of my career and why I do what I do, because I've seen the power of of it over the course of these last 13 years in the way that the community has shifted and changed. We had our first pride parade in 2018. We had to fight for that parade because the city didn't want to give us the permit for the parade. So it was this big, huge thing. But at the end of the day, I was standing in front of city council with a speech about how can we come together and find common ground? So that's always been my approach. It's not about, you know, people being right or people being wrong or this way is the way and this way isn't or anything like that. It's It's been about sharing each other's stories and finding a way to just love one another and, and be a part of a community. So that's why I love storytelling so much because I've, it's one of the only tools that I've seen that actually works in breaking down those barriers. And what do you remember of that first Pride Parade? Oh, gosh, now you're really going to make me cry. (laughs) I I was newly pregnant and throwing up all day long. But I walked down those streets with my wife and I saw my community show up and standing on the long side of the road, cheering, supporting us. Were there protesters there? Yeah, but they were so outnumbered. And... I remember just not caring about the protesters. All I cared about was just seeing the support from the community that had rejected me 14 years ago. And it was completely overwhelming. And another one of those unlock moments uh, for me, it was like, after that parade, I felt like I can take a break now. I can rest. I'm going to go and grow this child and become a mom and move on to the next chapter of my life. It's, it's almost like it closed a chapter for me in a lot of ways. So paint a picture now of the community you're in and what your life is like today. 
My life is absolutely crazy. <laughs> Anybody who has a four-year-old knows how that, what I mean by that. Um, it's a beautiful life and it's a challenging life and it's, but it's lovely. So my parents live here. My brothers live here. Their kids live here. My daughter's growing up with her cousins. Um, she's in a preschool where we're accepted as a family. And we have a real mix of friends. Um, and I mean, the biggest challenge for us now is just that spiritually, there's not really a place where we fit in here. So we started doing something called Earth Church, where we have people come um, maybe once a month or once every few months, and we come together and we do something together like that. But that's the biggest challenge for us is not feeling like we have a spiritual home that really resonates. Um, but we've, we have found a way to create this life that we both really, really love and would not give up for anything. Your whole thing is about vulnerable storytelling in your, in the work that you do. And I mean, I, I, I knew how good you were at this, but you're really good at this. When you're helping other people to reach a different level of communication of inspiration of purpose through vulnerable storytelling, that's a hard thing to get a lot of people to be able to do. Tell me a bit about that and what, what do you do to unlock that in other people? I talk about its power in my, in my life so that there's context. Um, but I think a lot of people don't really know where to begin. They don't know how to begin telling their stories. And so when I'm working with people one-on-one -on -one or in groups, workshops, whatever it is, it's just about helping them be open to telling one story from their life and be okay writing it down and getting started or saying it out loud. Or Everybody's different. Everybody likes to tell their stories differently. So whatever that format is, but helping them understand that the power of a story, it's not in the, the details are important, but they're not the most important. The details of how they're feeling in the story is what's important. And so helping them identify what that is, is the turning point for them from a healing perspective and from a telling the story perspective. Because until we have that connection between us of me being very honest and vulnerable about how I'm feeling in that story and being able to convey that, then it's just a story and a story while can be compelling and entertaining. It doesn't move a person until we get to that emotional connection and people don't remember a story as well until there's that emotional connection and we can find each other in that emotional connection in that challenge that we're facing in that story. So it's a, it's a very, um, it's a precious process. I, I, it's some people dive right in and some don't, and and some get to a point where they just can't do it, and that's okay. And um, but I, I think when you're telling a story, you don't have to throw up all of your emotions. It can be a very quick turn of phrase. You can show your vulnerability very easily and not have to dive in into, you know, all of the details of your emotions. So, you know, helping people realize that 
to be vulnerable doesn't mean you have to tell us everything. It means you just have to give us a point of reference for where you are in that moment truly. When I'm listening to people talk about unlock moments, I know there's a really good one coming when it starts like it was raining. I was walking down the pavement wearing a blue coat <laughs> and then, and it's like, yeah, this is an unlock moment. When they go, yeah, I, that's, when, that's when I changed. It's not an unlock moment. The, the one that's an unlock moment is it was raining. I was wearing the blue coat because it's that vividness of the, of, of the recollection. For you, what's something that you know there's a really vulnerable story coming? What, what do they say before they get vulnerable? Is there something that, that is like, yeah, this is, they're properly connecting here? They, I don't know. I, that's a really good question. Something in their demeanor changes. There's, there's something about um, their presence that shifts that is that you can sense the vulnerability and that's what it is for me it's not it's not the details for me it's the um it's just a sense that i get about the person that something important is really about to come my way and i'm and there's just that moment between us that i can feel that presence being unexplainable really and that's beautiful and one of the reasons I love podcasting and podcasts is because there's no time limit and there's no pace requirement. There's no, you've got to ask another question or got to get to the end or fill the gap. Um, and this is one of those conversations, um, which I love. Um, and there's two other episodes that makes me think of one with Michael Librand from Gallup, who came on last autumn and one with Beatrice Sornek, who's a coach here in the UK who's a highly sensitive person um, and she's coach and coach supervisor and in both those conversations there are longer gaps than in any other conversation I've had because they're really thinking about stuff and when they think about something they're connecting with something that's really real in them and, and we've had that conversation today and I want people to notice that and to hear that, that to access that vulnerability, if you jump to the thing that you always say, you're probably not getting there. And there is something about being open to the silence and open to the, I don't know, actually, but I'm going to think a little bit more. And maybe it might be this, you know, that is part of the finding of this that I, that I think is, is really interesting you gave me chills you gave me chills as you were <laughs> saying all of that so thank you megan how can people find out more about you and the work that you do um, my website's a great place to land meganonan.com my books are there my work is there feel free to reach out happy to have a chat with anybody i knew this was going to be a good conversation and and it absolutely was the unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead for vulnerable storytelling expert Megan Onan, it was standing at her kitchen window and finding profound clarity that she had to move back to Mississippi to heal. Do go to Amazon and order a copy of her book, Held and Free, coming out of your story. 
Before we finish, I just want to read you this one review. And I don't normally read reviews, but I read this one and I liked it. So I'm going to share it. I'm not a fan of memoir, but this one took my breath away. Megan tells the story with such open honesty, revealing years of emotional trauma and also her deepest thoughts and challenges, her determination to be true to herself and also show respect and compassion to those who did not give that to her is remarkable. Underlying it all, we see the development of a deep faith written with the skill of a gifted storyteller. Now, in this moment, on this podcast, I know you, my listener, have experienced exactly the same. Megan, thank you so much for your authenticity and your vulnerability and for sharing your story in joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you for having this platform. Such an amazing host. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.